Hello, this is Greg Lois, and I hope you're here today to join us for our webinar on evaluating claims for exposure in New Jersey. Our goal today is to end the webinar with you having a better idea of how to respond to your clients, your locations, uh, your insureds who want to know what the case is worth. And that question is posed to you different ways. Usually it's, hey, how much is this going to cost me? Uh, today we're going to talk about how to best use counsel and to get that question answered. Uh, you're here today because this is part of our overall webinar series. Third Monday of the month is always our New York webinar with multiple sessions. Fourth Monday of the month today is New Jersey. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that this is part of our overall uh, outreach program we do for clients and prospective clients. Um, uh, we do handbooks. We have our website, which has a lot of information. In fact, every article I've written for the last nine or ten years is on there. Hundreds and hundreds of articles all on workers' compensation. We also offer these monthly webinars and a newsletter. Um, this, the webinars are also now archived. Uh, last week, we were doing the New York webinar. We had a little bit of a technical problem during it. Uh, I'm going to show you now where you can find the archive of all of our webinars. It's on our website. Under webinars, choose the archive choice, and they should all be up there. And those can be listened to uh, online. They can also be just downloaded right to your computer. So that's where uh, we have all of uh, the archived presentations. All right, that's enough housekeeping. Let's get right into today's topic. Our topic today is what is the exposure posed by this claim? Uh, it's a huge question, and uh, we're going to now be building on the prior what is this now, seven months of webinars. We're going to be sort of adding together a lot of the pieces that we've been talking about. Uh, if you've been attending these webinars, you know that they are additive and they have basically followed the chapters in my book. Well, now we're getting to the place where we're starting to add up all of the different um, uh, topics and uh, sort of uh, discussions that we've had, and we're going to put them all together and start to talk about how to use counsel and how to get your exposures figured out. Well, when I thought about this case uh, or thought about this uh, topic, I thought, let's talk about two different things. First of all, when should we know the exposure or when should we be getting information from counsel uh, about what the exposure is in my case? And then the second part, which is a lot easier, is how is the exposure actually estimated in New Jersey? Um, this is a webinar. This is live. So please feel free to reach out to me with questions during the webinar. Uh, the, here's a question section. I don't know if you're watching this on an iPad or your desktop or your laptop. They all look a little bit different. But on the uh, laptop version or the desktop version, uh, there's this little question box. You type your question in, and I can see them popping up um, on the corner of my screen down below. And as we go through, I'll try my best to answer questions. Uh, if the question is topical to the slide I'm on at that moment, I'll maybe stop and answer the question. Otherwise, I'll do them all at the end. Um, always, you're encouraged to email me your questions uh, in advance as soon as you get the topic. All right, so let's talk about the when. When should we know exposure? And um, let's talk about how accurate those exposure analysis should be. And to sort of think about that, we need to think about all the different parts of the litigation process, which we've been talking about for the last several months. Um, again, if you're just joining us, I'm going to go through it because it's very useful to sort of give yourself a sort of a mental map of when we're going to know uh, what this case is worth. Now, remember, I'm your defense attorney, so everything I'm going to be telling you is kind of from the perspective of the defense attorney. I am not going to ever suggest reserves. That's not something that attorneys do, but I will always tell you about the exposures in your case. Um, when do I do that? Well, the typical time I do that is at the time of intake. That's when we send you out our legal action plan and budget right at the beginning of the case. 
uh, you should be expecting your defense counsel to give you a very good overview of the exposures posed by that case. Now, of course, it might be a little premature in New Jersey to give you those exposures right at the beginning of the case because the person could be under active medical care. Maybe the IMEs have not been obtained. Maybe we still have surveillance to obtain, et cetera. And New Jersey is such an easy state to get a credit for pre-existing disability. Maybe we don't know quite yet about all of the pre-existing problems this person's had. Uh, usually when a case is sent to us for handling, we get a CIB or an ISO claim search reports. We know they've had a couple prior workers' comp claims. Uh, we also go to the Division of Workers' Comp to get the prior records. But at the beginning of the case, you're getting really a rough estimate of that exposure. As the case moves through the litigation process, and we're going to talk about the mental model of walking through that litigation process, you should be getting better and better and more refined and more revised estimates of exposure from counsel at every step. So let's talk about that. First, intake, that's an easy, obvious one. With that first action plan, that first budget, you should be getting a good uh, report from your uh, counsel telling you, hey, this is what this case is worth. Next, before and after independent examinations are scheduled on behalf of the respondent and on behalf of the petitioner. Obviously, you're going to get an exposure analysis at the time a demand is made. Uh, hopefully, you're getting recommendations. Uh, let's say we can't uh, uh, settle the case then at the time of conference and, of course, pretrial. Let's walk through this because I'm a very structural thinker. I need to see things laid out in front of me. I need to put things into sort of a flow chart, and I think that might also be useful when you think about the time to estimate exposure or when exposure uh, can be best uh, uh, determined. Determined. Okay, let's talk about first. First, we're going to presume that this is a case in which MMI has been reached. It's difficult to establish or estimate overall exposure and claims before maximum medical improvement has been reached, before that person has reached that sort of medical plateau. Why? They could take a turn for the worse. They could have a very long healing period. Uh, they could have a terrible functional outcome. And in New Jersey, uh, the functional outcome of the petitioner and the medical records themselves are going to be relied upon primarily by the workers' comp judge and the IME physician to give you their estimate of overall residual disability. So that's important for us. Remember, New Jersey is an impairment state, so we're going to be looking to the exams. Hopefully, you were here last week for, I'm sorry, last month for our last webinar in which we talked about independent medical evaluations. And we talked about the classic case last month where, you know, their physician gives them a 50% residual disability and our gives us a five. And there's a huge chasm. There's a massive gulf in between those two positions where these physicians are really coming out all over the place. And let's, let's be frank, right? They're choosing physicians that are very paternalistic, that are always going to come up with very high figures. We're choosing physicians who are more conservative. I like to think they're more realistic or less sympathetic. Um, and our physicians are going to give us uh, generally a lower value, and theirs are going to give them a much higher value. Last week, we talked about uh, not really being able to rely on the independent medical evaluations, both on the behalf of the respondent or behalf of the petitioner, to give you a really accurate assessment of the person's overall medical impairment. Again, we're picking conservative physicians. They're picking very paternalistic physicians. Uh, when I first started practicing in New Jersey 15 years ago, I was told by an older practitioner a very good uh, rule of thumb, uh, which, you know, over time you start to see. Uh, the practitioner would say, Greg, uh, generally you'll see these cases come out at 50 percent of whatever their uh, physician estimates. So if their estimate is 100% disability, you know, it's more likely to come out closer to 50% or three times what the uh, respondent's IME physician would come out. Now, again, that's an old rule of thumb and it doesn't really work all the time, but it's an interesting way of thinking about it, right? 
And the experienced practitioner is going to come at these cases with sort of a natural inclination of, hmm, okay, I see that your doctor has this huge number. Our doctor's got this small number. We're going to discount that uh, appropriately. Okay. Uh, Let's move on. So at the time of examinations are, are conducted on behalf of the petitioner and, and the behalf of the respondent, you should expect to be getting an updated estimate of exposure, and it should be quite accurate. Um, at the time that the petitioner's attorney presents us with a settlement demand, or conversely, we make a settlement offer, we should also be expecting that estimate of exposure to be refined, to be revised. I'm going to talk a little bit about how the demand can affect it uh, in the later slides. Uh, and then, of course, during negotiations, right? These are not one-sided communications. I've hardly ever settled any cases in New Jersey in which it was just me saying, here's what I offer. I mean, basically, if they took my first offer, I knew I probably offered way too much money. Um, generally, these things go back and forth, and the parties will give each other uh, their positioning. And sometimes we cannot settle them. But uh, during these negotiations, you should be getting updated estimates of exposure. I like to think of that first settlement demand or that first offer as simply just putting down stakes, right? We're just boundary setting with these initial offers and demands. Um, generally speaking, I don't consider the initial settlement demand going to be the final demand. Um, now, it's a little bit different in New York. In New York, I like to take the aspect of my first offer is my best offer. It's only going to get worse from here. Uh, but in New Jersey, we, it operates a little bit differently. Now, New Jersey, every case, if we cannot agree, um, is going to go to a settlement conference. And that's because in the litigation process, if we agree on a settlement before the case is listed for a pretrial conference, it's going to be put through. What does put through mean? That just simply means it gets judicially blessed. We put it uh, into a form of writing. We call it an order approving settlement. It's put on the record and the case is put through. So that term put through just means settled on the record. And remember, in New Jersey, every single case needs to be approved by a law judge on the record. There's no such thing as an out-of-court workers' compensation settlement. All right. Let's say we can't put the settlement through or we can't agree. What happens next? Well, again, if we can't do a put through, again, those are usually done the same day, we'll have a conference with the judge of compensation. And those conferences work uh, in a sort of circular fashion. If we agree uh, at the conference, and that could be just the two parties together, uh, the judge will typically approve that settlement. Uh, if the parties cannot agree, usually the judge will give us input. Uh, remember that in New Jersey, the judges uh, have a lot of input into these cases, and they want to know things about the case. This is unlike other jurisdictions that I practice in, in which the, the judges really don't seem to care so much about the medical or the functional outcome or the actual impairment or anything. The judges want to hear, hey, did the parties make an agreement? If so, I'm ready to put that case through. In New Jersey, the judges do like to listen uh, to the parties discuss the case. They like to review the independent medical examination reports, which are made by both parties, and the judges give us input put into what they think the value of the case is. Now, um, the worst place you want to go into is one of these conferences and be seem unreasonable, like you haven't made a settlement demand in an accepted admitted case, uh, or in other words, uh, put yourself sort of behind the eight ball in which the judge is going to come to you and say, hey, uh, wh what are we doing here? Why, why can't you make a settlement offer? Um, this is the time to really have that conversation with all of the parties and get the judge's input into what the value of the case is. Let's say the judge comes out and gives a high value on the case, and we can't agree to that. Um, we have an option, and that option is called pre-try. Uh, pre-try means the judge has got to put down on a piece of paper exactly what they think the case is worth, and this is called a pre-trial memorandum. Now, in my slide, when I scanned this on my scanner, it came out white, but an actual pre-trial memorandum is green, 
Uh, so hopefully if you're watching me on a color computer, you can see that this sheet that I'm holding up is actually green. Uh, this is a green sheet. And when we execute one of these pretrial memorandums in court, it means we're readying the case for trial. Okay, this is where both parties cannot agree. Uh, and we've gone to the judge and we said, listen, we can't agree on the value of this case. The judge will, is required by the regulations to execute a green sheet or a pretrial memorandum. On the top, it says pretrial memorandum. Now, the part that's important about this green sheet is the very bottom of it, in which the judge uh, writes down their recommendation. So uh, as you can see on your screen, that recommendation bubble is, pop, is there. And why is that important? Well, man, you're going you're gonna to have a very good idea of what the exposure is on the case when the judge is writing their own recommendation for settlement, if there is a recommendation for settlement, on that pretrial memorandum. Now, you won't see a recommendation in a case where the issue is purely legal, right? Is this my employee? Is this not my employee? Is there a jurisdictional argument or a notice argument? But in cases where the dispute between the parties is how much permanent impairment does the petitioner have, you can turn to that green sheet to get the judge's recommendation. And let me tell you another little secret. Let's say the judge says, my recommendation is for 15% of permanent partial total. And we'll talk about what that means in a few seconds. Um, and we come back and we say, okay, judge, we can't agree with this. Uh, we're offering 12.5% of permanent partial total. Well, the next step after the pretrial memorandum is trial. Let me tell you a little secret. Uh, maybe not a secret. Maybe it's obvious. If the judge makes a recommendation to the respondent, hey, this is what the settlement offer should be, or this is what I think the case should settle at, and you don't accept that, unless you've got something in your back pocket, and I mean surveillance, uh, evidence of a per se fraud, something else that's really going to move the trial of this case. Let me tell you something. At trial, you're going to probably do worse than that judge's recommendation, right? Because the judge is now annoyed. I made this recommendation. You ignored it. You tried the case. You didn't pull anything in, any amazing um, surveillance video or something else that's going to blow this case apart. So guess what? I'm going to tag you for higher than my recommendation. The converse also works. Let's say we make a settlement offer of 15% of permanent partial total, 90 weeks of compensation. Our adversary rejects it and says, I don't want that offer. We then go and conference the case with the judge of compensation who says, you know what? I think 90 weeks of compensation is fair. And I think 15% of permanent partial total is the right number. And you should take that petitioner and writes that recommendation on the pretrial memorandum. Guess what? If that case then gets tried, I don't expect petitioner to obtain that 15% of permanent partial total unless they came in with some kind of amazing, much worse injuries. And the reason for that is the judges are using these pretrial memorandums and their recommendations to keep the parties out of the litigation process or, or keep them out of trial. Okay, so that's something to think about strategically. I can't tell you how many clients I talk to who tell me they've never seen a pretrial memorandum. Uh, every time we execute a pretrial memorandum in court, our practice is always to scan it and send it to the adjuster so you can see here's exactly what the judge's recommendations are. Man, what a great opportunity to figure out your real exposure in a case. Here's the judge's actual signature and them writing in what they think it is. All right. So let's say we can't pre-try the case, or we pre-tried the case, we can't uh, resolve it, and maybe our adversary is just being unreasonable. Uh, what's the next step? Well, we try the case, and every case ends up with an, a written order, and hey, your exposure is going to be what's in that written order. Okay, so that's the whole mental model of how the cases move through the litigation process. And all during this process, you should be getting information from your uh, defense counsel uh, about your exposures. I mean, right from the very beginning, I'd like to do it right at the time of intake. Um, so when are, when are you getting this information? A, right when you send me the case, within a week, I'm sending you back a legal action plan and budget, and that's going to 
to give you my preliminary estimate of exposure. The next really good opportunity for us to revisit exposure is going to be when we get our reports and when they get their reports. Um, how about when we get settlement demands? You should absolutely be getting an exposure estimate, and then you should be getting our recommendations. Hey, their demand's high, their demand's low. What do we do next? All during the negotiation process. And this, when I say negotiation, I really mean before we go to court and do this negotiation process in front of the judge. Uh, it seems to me quite silly to wait until you actually are before the judge to pre, to negotiate the settlement in a case. I know a lot of people do that and they say, I'm not going to waste my time trying to chase petitioners' attorneys around and try to get offers and demands out. I'll just wait till I see them the next time in court. I don't think that's a good practice. It wastes time. It wastes uh, money. Uh, plus you'll go to court and then maybe you can can reach a settlement, um, but they don't have their claimant there. So I, I prefer to do it in advance. And if we can't reach that, then remember, you're going to go through those steps where the judge is going to conference the case and hopefully execute a pretrial memorandum if no settlement can be reached. All right. So that's the when, when you should be getting exposure estimates. Let's talk about how. How are we estimating uh, exposure in New Jersey? Uh, and just at this time, I just want to remind everyone that we do have an opportunity to ask questions during this webinar. Uh, so far, I don't see any questions popping up. I'll check again as we go through. Um, but you can absolutely ask questions. I will read the questions out loud and then answer them as we go along. Okay, so let's keep going here. Um, how is exposure estimated? Now, I want to tell you more than just, hey, we've done this forever, so we all know what things are worth. I think that's kind of a lazy answer. Let's walk through the different types of settlements, and um, let's talk about uh, the way exposure is calculated. Well, let's do the simple ones first. Uh, the simple ones are the scheduled loss of use sites in New Jersey, right? Hands, finger, feet, and toes. New Jersey is a little weird compared to other states um, because in New Jersey, um, uh, shoulders are not considered arms. Most states consider the shoulder part of the statutory arm. Uh, in New Jersey, a shoulder is part of partial total or whole man impairment. And the same thing goes for a hip, especially an internal derangement or hip replacement type injury. The hip is not considered part of the statutory leg, even though in most states it would be considered part of the statutory leg. Um, in New Jersey, the legislature back in 1910 or 1911 set out a schedule. It's at section 12 of the statute, and it basically gives a week value, meaning number of weeks of compensation for every single body part. Uh, why is this interesting? Well, it means that every uh, estimating overall exposure for things like hands, finger, feet, toes, wrists, elbows, knees is very straightforward because we've all done it a million times. A couple interesting things about New Jersey. The hand, the statutory hand, is everything south of the elbow. So um, I'm holding up my, my arm right now. You can't really see it, but it's everything below the elbow or distal from the elbow. Uh, that's the hand. Okay, so your forearm is part of your hand. The elbow is the arm, and we think of everything below the shoulder as being the arm. Same thing with feet and, and knees. So everything below the knee, shin, uh, ankle, those are considered feet injuries. The knee is essentially the leg, and anything above the knee, usually people are arguing for partial total on those. Okay. Uh, so I'm showing, I'm showing you right now on the screen a copy of what we call the chart. Practitioners call this the chart. And this chart is uh, the number of weeks for each disability, and it's enumerated. So if you lost 100% of your hand, you get 245 weeks of compensation. 50% uh, of the hand is exactly half of that, or 122.5 weeks of compensation. It's very simple and straightforward to, re to read. Um, 
where it gets more difficult is partial total, right? How much and partial total disability is the body parts which are not enumerated, and this would be injuries to the head, injuries to the neck, injuries to the thoracic spine, lumbar spine, shoulder injuries, pulmonary or respiratory injuries, psychiatric claims, and all neurologic claims. Uh, and how are those calculated? Well, again, you can use the chart, uh, the maximum award in New Jersey for partial total. That's less than total disability is 450 weeks of compensation. So you could use the chart to determine that. Nowadays, everyone uses this thing called Oscar calculator. It used to be annoying. You'd have to like download it to your computer. Now you can get to it right from a browser. So this is awesome. We can actually um, do these calculations uh, from anything, anywhere we are. Uh, these calculations, uh, by the way, are what the, uh, the division is relying upon and the judges are relying on them. This is interesting because, you know, as an older practitioner, I started out using the paper forms or the paper charts and calculating things. We don't do that anymore. So, uh, anyway, this is how you would uh, calculate the overall exposure on what we call a partial uh, disability case. All right, so let's get back to uh, how we are actually uh, determining exposures. And let's use the typical case where our evaluating physician has given us a low degree of overall impairment, let's say 5% of permanent partial total, and their physician has given them a 50% impairment, right? Uh, you, all these facts, you you, uh, you can see they're there in your file, but you keep asking, what is the overall exposure? What do? How do we actually come to that? How do we actually calculate it? Well, it's pretty simple. First of all, there's a normal range for pretty much every single kind of injury. I hate to say this. I like to think of myself as a legal professional, but really what I am is like a human butcher because I've been doing this for so long, you basically start to realize what or start to learn what the value is of every single body part. And most cases are going to fall within a normal range for each injury type. So, for example, we see the same kind of injuries over and over and over and over again in New Jersey, and we see the same range, and we'll call this the amicable or friendly exposure range on a case. Uh, for example, an operated knee, maybe an arthroscopically repaired knee with a meniscal tear. Uh, what is that worth? Well, generally speaking, they're worth about 25% of the statutory leg, which is 78.75 weeks of compensation. How do I know that? Well, it's just been doing this for so long. That's always been sort of the value. And uh, the value can change. It can be a little bit higher or lower. And the interesting thing is that the judges in New Jersey do look at the underlying medical. So uh, they're going to say, okay, well, you know, Dr. Canario gave if you're that knee, a two and a half, and Dr. Weiss gave that same knee a 47 and a half or a 55 or some huge number. And the judges go, oh, those are great. The, the IMEs are important, but they're actually going to look at the person's functional outcome. They're going to say, did this person return to work? Is it the same type of job? Let's take a look at the medical records. Were they discharged from all care? Are they remaining under some kind of care? Because remember, in New Jersey, you can be deemed discharged from medical care at maximum medical improvement, but still requiring palliative care, and that would like pain care or ongoing functional uh, assistance, uh, like on uh, physical therapy here and there, that type of thing. So the judges will actually look at the underlying medicals, and that's different than the other jurisdiction I practice in in New, Jersey, uh, New York, where New York judges do not care at all. They just want to see the reports, uh, they'll listen to the claimant, and they'll make a decision. In New Jersey, the judges take a lot more time uh, during these pretrial conferences to actually take a look at the medical records and give a, uh, a fall. They'll sort of assess the case within that range. Again, you're not going to be really surprised in New Jersey, and we can give you a very good idea of what the range is going to be. It's also important to consider that in New Jersey, the range is going to vary by the judge, 
but also by where the case is venued. And my experience has been that cases that are venued in places like Atlantic City uh, just have a slightly higher exposure. Usually it's 10 to 15% higher than they would be anywhere else. And I don't mean 10%, every case add 10% to it. I just mean the overall dollar value, the number of weeks uh, comes out a little bit higher in those in that jurisdiction. Now, there's other factors which are going to influence the overall exposure of a case. Um, a big one that we've already kind of talked about and we've actually talked about in uh, prior webinars is surveillance, right? Because remember, these judges and our adversaries are making their decisions based on what they see in the medicals in front of them. But we, if we have excellent surveillance, which shows that the person who's complaining to their physician that they can't lift their arm up, you know, is playing beach volleyball every weekend, that's obviously going to impact, impact the exposure. And that be something that we'd want to bring to the attention of the court, whether that would be by way of pretrial memorandum or a conference in chambers or actually trying the case. Now, in New Jersey, it's also possible to get credits for pre-existing disability, and these are dollar-for-dollar dollar credits in the current year. So, for example, if the petitioner gets a 50% permanent partial total award this year, 300 weeks of compensation, huge award, over $100,000, uh, but 10 years ago, they got a prior award for 25% of permanent partial total. Guess what? You get the credit in today's dollars. So you get the credit for 300 weeks minus the 150 weeks they got 10 years ago, but the credit is taken at today's rates. So in New Jersey, a credit's a wonderful thing to establish if we can, because it really reduces our current exposure dramatically. It's, it's uh, dollar for dollar, but in uh, today's dollars. So that's something we're always looking at. In New Jersey, to reduce exposure, wonderful opportunity, ISO reports, any prior claims, anything we know about this claimant, did they have a Family Medical Leave Act request because they were getting their shoulder operated five years ago? Anything we can uh, use to show that there was a pre-existing disability. Lesser impact on the case is something like a voluntary tender in which we can voluntarily pay a amount of permanent partial disability, uh, and that would reduce our exposure for claimant's attorney's fees. Uh, generally speaking, that has to be done within the 26 weeks from the person being released from uh, at maximum benefit of care, and you should be guided by counsel. Section 40 liens, that's our right to reimbursement, subrogation right in New Jersey. If the claimant uh, recovers in a third-party suit against an actual tortfeasor under Section 40 of our statute, you can recover up to the value uh, that they recovered minus what they paid for cost of litigation, and that's attorney's fees. Um, Finally, increasing our exposure in New Jersey, actually not finally, almost finally, increasing our exposure is the concept of stacking, and that's the idea if you hurt your thumb and your elbow and your ankle, all of those disabilities stack, the weak stack, and so what you can end up doing is having a much higher exposure. Finally, New Jersey is one of the few states that still has a functioning second injury fund. If the petitioner is disabled by virtue of the last accident, that would be the accident that we're responsible for during our period of employment, and we can show any pre-existing disability that was actually disabling, in other words, they were losing time from work or had a modified job title, et cetera, we can get contribution from the second injury fund, which significantly reduces our exposure. In New Jersey, sometimes being totally disabled uh, from the carrier or the employer percent, uh, point of view is not so bad because we're getting contribution from the second injury fund, and it may be a dramatically lower exposure than a very high partial disability. So in New Jersey, you should be getting uh, guidance from your attorneys about when it's time to seek second injury fund contribution and what cases you might be eligible for. Okay, that's the end of my prepared remarks. Let's go to the questions. Uh, I'm going to lean in here and take a look at the questions. 
Okay. Question number one is from Randy. Randy asks, Greg, when can we bifurcate trials in New Jersey? Okay, let's talk about that. A bifurcated trial simply means that we decide we're only going to decide one issue at a time in the case. So uh, the typical situation where a bifurcated trial comes into play is a jurisdictional argument. So we've got an argument that maybe this person's not our employee. Maybe this person didn't give us notice in time. Maybe the statutes run. So we have a bifurcated trial, sim- uh, quickly, a quick uh, trial, just on the, uh, the jurisdictional issues. So usually it's just a legal issue. And we don't reach the rest of the case, which is how disabled this person is, if we determine that they've satisfied the threshold of the, the legal threshold that we were putting them to. Another good example for a bifurcated trial uh, is a situation where there's a limited issue, such as what was the person's average weekly wage? And there's a big dispute about their actual average weekly wage. Um, I do not typically um, uh, do bifurcated trials because I think it takes sort of a uh, an arrow out of our quiver. If we're going to, I think that there's a lot of jeopardy that attaches to trials in New Jersey. They're relatively rare to have cases on the trial list, uh, meaning it's not like New York where every single case is going to get testimony put in. Uh, in New Jersey, they're relatively rare, and so I like to keep the whole case together and have all my options open as I move through it. But in the interest of saving money, it can be a very effective way of litigating just specific issues within the case uh, without having to spend the time, effort, money, and litigation expense of trying an entire case. Okay, let me answer the next question. Uh, This is from Ryan. Greg, if a petitioner is found MMI but still needs ongoing pain meds, do we have to pay for them uh, with the MMI finding? Okay, so the definition of maximum medical improvement in New Jersey is not inconsistent with the idea that the petitioner would still be entitled to some ongoing palliative pain care. Uh, the idea in New Jersey is that once they have reached a plateau, they're not getting any better, right? Uh, they have a functional impairment. They are disabled, uh, but they're not going to improve beyond this threshold. Uh, all the treatment at that point becomes palliative. It's not curative anymore. This can be distinguished from the circumstance in which the petitioner simply refuses curative care, uh, which happens a lot, you know, uh, Petitioners say, you know, I'm, I'm scared of surgery. I don't want to be operated on. Uh, they would be found to be at MMI because they've refused curative care under Section 19 of the statute. We can do that. Um, but they're, they haven't actually reached their medical plateau yet. They've just sort of artificially limited how far they're going to get. I think your question is really, this petitioner has reached maximum medical improvement. Am I still obligated to pay for ongoing pain medications? Generally speaking, the answer is yes, that the uh, payment for uh, uh, palliative care going forward past the date they've reached maximum of curative care uh, would still be the responsibility of the employer or the carrier in New Jersey. Okay. Um, checking forward again. I see someone just saying, Greg, you're the best. That's it. I don't see any other questions. All right. So this, um, this webinar will be available tomorrow on our, our website, uh, for downloading. Um, next month's topic is reimbursement and subrogation, which we briefly touched on today in New Jersey. Uh, my partner, Joe Jones will be here and he'll be presenting on that topic. And that's about getting reimbursement from the actual tortfeasor. Um, Okay, one more question I see from Amanda here at the bottom. What if a patient is recommended to have surgery but is not wanted and there's nothing else to be done? Well, I think we just talked about that. Under Section 19 of the statute, if they're refusing further curative care, that puts them at maximum medical improvement.
Okay, uh, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us, and see you next month for subrogation liens.